Today we're going to be talking about the foot. Where will feet take us today? Well, in the middle of a pandemic, most of us are going to be thinking, actually not very far. Some people may be lucky enough to have a garden to run around. But for those of us, like myself, who live in a large city in a small flat, we have to contend with pacing between the living room and the kitchen. Feet, that enabler of movement, the symbol of freedom, the appendage with which we play footsie, they are not allowed to be footloose and fancy-free anymore. Now, if you've been following my talks on body parts, hair, eyes, breasts, stomachs, penises, clitorises, you will have already identified a couple of common themes. There is the theme about the non-naturalized, non-universal body, power, agency, malleability, the social life of organs and limbs. And yes, I am going to be returning to some of those themes in this talk as well. But I think more important for today's focus on the foot are questions of ethics and desire. In fact, I actually hope to persuade at least some of you that there is more sexiness in the foot is fetish than in the rest of the body. To do this, I need to start with fetishism. No, I am not mispronouncing fetishism. Fetishism was a brief, revolutionary, queer theological movement in Brazil in the mid-1980s. It was started by Glauco Matsoso, a blind Brazilian poet. And this was a transgressive, consciously indecent theology that sought an unveiling of God's love through the power of massagem lingopedal, or tongue-foot massage. Adherents, believe it or not, were encouraged to lick and kiss the sweaty, filthy feet of the oppressed as well as the oppressors in an act of demonstration of love and respect. Workers and the destitute, homophobes and policemen were all recipients of this sacramental act, which sought to invert positions of power through the giving and receiving of pleasure. Matoso published the Fetishist Handbook, Adventures and Readings from a Guy Crazy of Bout Feet. And when that book became a cult classic with hundreds of followers, he turned it into a cartoon called The Adventures of Glacomiques, the Fetishist. The followers of Glacomiques think a perverted Asterix kissed and licked feet in a religious rite of self-mortification and big-hearted human sympathy for the unknowable other. Like liberation theology more generally, which of course was very popular in Latin America at the time, this was an ideology of humility that sought to give people permission to confront harmful hierarchies and injustices. It was no passive exchange, but an act of doing of divine love. As Argentinian theologian Marcel Maria Althos Reed explains, the scent, she wrote, of a Latin American theology will always be the scent of a materialist theology that knows how poverty smells and understands how erotic revelations, revelations of divine love, occur when some policemen kiss the feet of factory workers in San Paolo. And this is because a Latin American fetishist theology arrives at an erotic unveiling of God's love 
among the dirty, sweating bodies of the marginalised and the excluded. It is queer and it is political as it is driven by that sense of urgency for social justice that still characterizes the liberationist Latin American theological movement in its search for alternative orders, loving orders and theological ones. Clearly, fetishism was a fetishistic ideology, but not in the sense that Freud has espoused with its emphasis on castration and the female phallus, which I am going to turn to later but in the sense of the fetish as a displacement of the object of desire, the object of desire being God, displaced to the feet of the poor, the sinning, the sick. It is, as Stephanie Klaus explains in Theology and the Senses, a way of looking for God in places where one would not traditionally think of looking in which does not reduce the multiple forms of loving other persons and God to a few socially acceptable ones, like heterosexuality or the official ritual of the liturgy. After all, remember, fetishes don't kiss and caress just any feet or shoes. There is no place in this queer theology for Christians Louboutin's signature shoes with their exclamatory red soles and fetishistic celebration of social exclusion. Rather, Matoso and his followers seek out the threadbare sneakers worn on factory floors, the filthy boots of manual labourers, the smelly feet of men in women who carry out those essential services that we today, in the midst of our own pandemic, have suddenly noticed actually exist. Equally important, his theology does not even require a belief in a higher being or God, because it is grounded in a materialist ideology dedicated to radical justice in this world. Of course, I am not suggesting that we re-energize fetishism. It was a movement that had its time, 1980s, place, Brazil, spiritual roots, liberation theology. And my own personal intellectual attraction to fetishism resolutely excises God, an idea I develop in my book, What It Means to Be Human. But I am suggesting two things that will be the focus of this talk. The first is the pivotal, and I use that word advisedly, role of feet in religious and secular movements opposed to oppressive regimes and global injustice. And second, I want to encourage us to think anew about the erotic politics of feet in our society. Fetishism was a unique movement, but it drew on symbols and practices that can be traced back to the ancient world, where hosts would wash the feet of visitors, a ritual designed to transform strangers into welcome guests. Krishna bathed the feet of the Brahmas. Muslims and Jews thoroughly cleanse their feet before praying. In the Christian religion, we hear of the female sinner who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, kissed them, dried them with her hair, and anointed them with ointment. During the Last Supper, Jesus knelt before his disciples before washing and kissing their feet. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. 
I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. These biblical stories inspired the liberationist followers of uh, Matozo, but they have also, of course, been parodied by others, my favourite being, most notably, T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland. The verses in The Wasteland go, Oh, the moon shone bright on Mrs. Porter and on her daughter, and they washed their feet in soda water. This is both a satire on the biblical story of Jesus' feet being washed by the tears of a female sinner, but it's also, you see, an allusion to Mrs. Porter, the madame of a popular Cairo brothel during the First World War. In fact, the original ditty goes like this. Oh, the moon shone bright on Mrs. Porter and on the daughter of Mrs. Porter. They washed their... I'm not allowed to say that word, in soda water, and so they ought to, to keep them clean. In other words, it's a ditty about washing their genitals in a solution of bicarbonate of soda to avoid contracting, or indeed transmitting, syphilis. As these diverse accounts of fish, fish foot washing suggests, feet and their coverings convey worlds of meanings. They connect people to the earth. Matozo praised the filthy, diseased foot. It was noble, sacred even, because it belonged to men and women of the people. But if we fly like the god Hermes from the favelas of St. Paolo to a different impoverished context, the remote Fenlands of England, dirty feet take on a very different significance. In the Fens, where men engaged in the demanding labour of digging peat, cutting sedges, repairing dikes. They cleaned their feet as rarely as possible. Water, they believed, would wash away their strength. Even as late as the 1950s, when preparing bodies of these men for burial, one of the highest compliments a mourner could make was that she had never seen dirtier feet. Mud-encased feet were a sign that the deceased man had retained his strength until the very end. Some commentators claimed to be able to diagnose character from feet. Now, for those of you who've been following my lectures, I've spoken a great deal in this series about the Victorian pseudoscience of physiognomy. Podoscopy was the physiognomy of the feet. It was promoted by a lot of people, including writers such as a man who signed himself Philopedes, 1825. Philopedes contended that if you may know a man from the bumps of his skull, the wrinkles on his face, or the character of his handwriting, so you may know him from the shape and outline of his feet. He continued, the most shallow, shallow observers may clearly discern in the capricious, fully grown but well-formed foot the plainest indication of a vigorous and masculine understanding. What eloquence in the bold sinew, in the strong tendon! What firmness exhibited by the sound, hearty brown! No flabbiness, no superfluous flesh, nothing to impede the free use of the member. Can such a foot 
be given to a sluggard. Well, unlike the praise given to the capricious men's feet as these kind of virile organs, big feet and women are generally held in disdain. As the author and author in Hearth and Home, our 10th of May 1894, was particularly blunt. On the one hand, he sought to point out that it was a fallacy that small extremities mean good breeding. He contended that small feet were not hereditary, but were the gift of nature, like Cupid's bow mouth, golden hair and dimples. But their possessor is usually as proud thereof as if as though she were the creator. But on the other hand, he endorsed the view that the luckless big-souled girl should be deeply embarrassed by her appendages. He noted that such girls and women were acutely conscious of a shortcoming in this matter of beauty, and so is likely to be anxious to please and to win affection by other, by other means than charms of person. Unfortunately, she was also, he wrote, sometimes guilty of a little uncharitableness towards the pretty wearer of the number two slipper which bears about the same relation to her own ample footgear as a symbol to a three-decker. He advised the big-souled women to invest in well-made boots that would cover a multitude of ugliness. Interestingly, not all cultures do actually prefer small feet. Our men in some uh, places in Indonesia, for example, have a strong preference for big-footed women. And at least one major study revealed that the pre preference for large female feet was positively correlated with rural societies which had less exposure to the Western media. It's not going to come as any surprise that the coverings of feet come clad in rich cultural meaning. A shoe can be an object d'art, a fetish, a sign of sexual preferences or moral attitudes, a performance of gender or identity. The shoes that Vincent van Gogh painted, 1886, simply entitled A Pair of Shoes, was the centerpiece in one of the greatest philosophical reflections of the 20th century. Martin Heidegger's The Origin of the Work of Art observed the painting of these shoes in Amsterdam, in Amsterdam Gallery, 1930. He wrote, From the dark opening of the worn insides of the shoes, the tollsome tread of the worker stares forth. In the stiffly rugged heaviness of the shoes, there is the accumulated tenacity of her so slow trudge. On the leather lie the dampness and richness of the soil. Under the soles slides the loneliness of the field path as evening falls. In the shoes vibrate the silent call of the earth, its quiet gift of the ripening grain and its unexplained self-refusal in the fellow desolation of the wintry field. In other words, Heidegger argues that Van Gogh's painting reveals both the being of shoes and the truth of the peasant woman's entire world to us. As Heidegger put it, the artwork lets us know what shoes are in truth. Shoes are also historically malleable. They come sheathed in regimes of power. 
the 18th century, men who wore high heels were conveying a message about their elevated social class. In contrast, after the French Revolution, high heels came to be seen as symbols of aristocratic corruption and they were rejected as democracy spread round Europe and North America. National identity often linked to shoes. In the 18th and 19th centuries, for example, leather-shod Englishmen looked down on the wooden clogs worn in the Netherlands, France and Belgium. In the American South, brooms, that is the cheap, unlined boots imported by poor Irish immigrants and worn by slaves and manual labourers, were signs of servitude. The fact that they were mass-produced by northern shoe manufacturers who claimed to oppose slavery was seen as evidence, indeed, of their hypocrisy. In the American West, the high-heeled boots of cowboys boasted their virile skills roaming the frontier. Amongst urban women around the 1890s and 1900s, neoclassical-inspired flat-soled sandals pointed to their adherence to the cult of domesticity. In contrast, the femme fatale wears the phallic weaponry of red or black stilettos, while the extravagant shoe collections of women like Amal de Marcos unashamedly proclaim their vanity. The contrast between the high platforms worn by male glam rockers in the 1970s proclaiming their rebellion against rebellion and the sneakers of 21st century rappers could not be greater. Feet, shoes, they all play major roles in our literary imaginary. Cinderella, after all, is reputed to be the first fairy tale, appearing initially in Egyptian texts followed by Chinese ones in the 9th century. All versions feature women with exceptionally tiny feet. The closest story to the one that is popular today was told by Charles Perron in the 17th century, although it's important to note that a mistranslation of his story meant that the original fur shoe became a glass one. We all know the bare bones of the story. It involves innocent, much-abused Cinderella with delicate feet, her malevolent stepmother and stepsisters, and a handsome pre prince. The story revolves around the prince seeking out the owner of a small shoe. In Brother Grimm's 1857 version, the heroine's stepsisters have feet that are too large for the slipper. Their mother reassures them that once they become queen, they won't have to walk. So one sister cuts off her heel, while the other amputates a toe. Their deception is revealed to the prince by two pigeons perching in a hazel tree. They tell him, Looky, look, look at that shoe that she took. There's blood all over. Her foot's too small. She's not the bride that you met at the ball. When the prince, of course, slips the slipper onto Cinderella's foot, she is found to be perfect in size and form. Her small foot, proof of her natural superiority and morality. The 1950s Disney film version, which I'm sure most of you have seen, of the story takes, I think, the meaning of feet to another level. The stepmother and stepsisters have oversized feet, bulbous noses, hairy bodies, indicating their bestial natures, transgressive sexualities. 
In contrast, Cinderella's small, smooth skin. While the stepsisters stomp around with large, naked feet and monstrous, protruding toes, Cinderella has tiny feet, modest, demure, glimpsed actually only briefly before being slipped into slippers. Unlike the Grimm's Tale, which is really about true and false prides, this version is actually about capitalist aspirations and the right of innocent, honest, hard-working girls to ascend in the class structure. Aspiration, no longer a moral defect, as in Han Christen Andersen's 1845 classic, The Red Shoes, which you may know, but a democratic right. Obviously, and you knew I was getting to this, feet are also about sex. Although, I doubt that Cinderella is capable of giving her prince more than a chaste kiss. It doesn't require any in-depth knowledge of fetishism or Freudianism to know that Fat Swallow's song, Your Feet's Too Big, is really alluding to a man's anxiety about sexual performance. You can see this, um, him singing this actually on YouTube, but the lyrics go like this. Can't go nowhere with you because your feet's too big. Can't get into bed with you because your feet's too big. Can't stand you because your feet's too big. Can't tolerate you because your feet's too big. In other words, in Waller's tune, the large foot is associated with a frightening, all-enveloping vagina. Literary representations of feet routinely allude to their owner's sexuality. One of Matozo's comic strips, Roxana, a young lady from Santana, is told entirely from the legs down. Readers never catch a glimpse of the characters' faces, but we are given a very clear sense of their central lives, morals, simply through portraying their feet, ankles and knees. This is also the viewpoint of a fantastic story about a veiled, veiled woman in Gunu's Kamari's story, Younger Wife. The story starts by the narrator, she's wearing a veil, describing a man's feet. It goes like this. The father of Harinath has the most beautiful feet in the world. His big toes are juicy knobs of ginger and his small toes curled cloves of garlic. His soles are as red as chilies from the mud of the fields where he works. It takes some time for readers to realise that the narrator is speaking about her husband, who she is much in love with, and his feet, because behind her veil she has not once seen his face. She experiences intense erotic experiences when she washes his feet. When her husband tells her that he wants more sons, she complies, and after he does the work, that is, that is has sex in the dark, she turns and kisses and sucks his feet. She confesses that they are my own special toys for licking and sucking, like nipples for a baby. Because this unnamed narrator is unable to look at her husband's face, her erotic life is fixed onto his juicy knobs, his toes. This is the fetish as understood by Karl Marx, an object that is imagined to have independent existence while being the product of social relations. Sexual attention is invested in the object of its, in its own right, 
not as part of a wider economy, or in this case, person. Sigmund Freud, we have to get to him, developed a very different understanding of the foot fetish, and one that is, to my view, a very masculinist one. For him, feet were phallic symbols. The foot fetish emerged from the castration complex in early childhood, in which the foot functioned as a substitute for the penis. In his three essays on the theory of sexuality, 1905, Freud maintained that the foot replaces the penis, which is so much missed in the women. Woman. In some cases of foot fetishism, it could be shown that the desire for looking originally directed to the genitals, which wished to reach each object from below, was stopped on the way by prohibition and repression, therefore adhered to the foot or shoe as a fetish. In conformity with infantile expectation, the female genital was hereby imagined as a male genital. Later, in an essay um, he simply entitled Fetishism, Freud linked the fetish with infantile traumas and castration complexes. The foot, in other words, a substitute for the invisible female penis. Freud claimed, adding that, it is not a substitute for a chance penis, but for a particular and quite special penis that had actually been extremely important in early childhood but had later been, later been lost. The fetish is a substitute for the women's, the mother's penis that the little boy once believed in and does not want to give up. In other words, the fetishist wants to disavow the castrated and therefore castrating mother or woman. Now, whatever we may think of this theory, Freud was correct to identify feet as the primary fetish. Foot fetishes, in fact, account for nearly half of all fetishes associated with body parts. The second most popular fetish is bodily fluids, such as urine or feces, but these account for only 9% of body part fetishes. When it is realized that a further one-third of fetishists have a fetish for feet wear, we can see the importance of feet in all things perverse. Nowhere is this more striking than in the obsessions surrounding the three-inch golden lotus feet of women who have had their feet bound. This practice was once widespread throughout China, although there are major regional variations, and lasted for nearly 1,000 years. In the 18th century, Fang Sun, known as the Doctor the fragrant lotus identified 58 types of bound feet and generally classed within five main styles. And these are the lotus petal, new moon, harmonious bow, bamboo shoot, and water chestnut. Feet binding, though, is a laborious and painful process. Bandaging usually started when a girl was around six years of age, and by adulthood it was irreversible. It is off, was often, though not always, imposed upon young girls very much against their inclinations because the process is agonising. It crushes bones and tissue. Now, when walking in normal feet, the load is distributed throughout the foot. But with bound feet, the rear foot and forefoot bear most of the load. 
Women with these feet are forced to walk on the back of their heels, thus permanently inhibiting movement. The binding of Chinese women's feet has been interpreted in a large number of ways. Some have employed, employed Freud's view on the fetish, while others turn to Vleben's theory of conspicuous consumption. Still other commentators regard it as a form of upward social mobility for women, since the practice sent out the signal that the women was used to sedentary labour, such as household textile production. Whatever the interpretation, all agree that bound feet have been fetishized and exoticized. The fetishized lotus foot has been given an independent life in art and in poetry. The poetry sushi of the Song dynasty is credited with writing the first poem praising bound feet, but it was in the late imperial period where such literatures flourished. Now, the practice has always had its critic. The famous 18th century poet Young May, for example, quipped that, well, if fathers wanted their daughters to have small feet, they should simply cut the feet to size, much like Cinderella's sisters. In the 20th century, protest against feet binding became part of an anti-communist political pawn, almost. In the early 20th century, Chinese nationalists, foreign missionaries, and feminists called for natural feet, um, partly because natural feet, they thought, represented the modern. And this is where I think recent scholarship has been particularly interesting. In Cinderella's Sisters, historian Dorothy Coe argued that the Western emphasis on cultural practices such as foot binding has reified Chinese women as victims. Ko wants us to move beyond the discourses which focus on lotus feet as either erotic or the other extreme as evidence of patriarchal hatred of women. She emphasizes female agency, observing that a pair of shapely bound feet was the lifelong work of women. Ko points out that foot binding was not merely an announcement of status and desirability, to the outside world, but also a concrete embodiment of self-respect for the woman herself. And it could not have become so widespread without their participation. I personally, though, think, I agree with her arguments, but I personally think there's another point to be made about Western critics of the barbaric practice of bound feet. And this is this. It sits really uneasily with the fetishization of the feet of ballerinas in the West and their shoes. In Balatomania, dance historian Walter Sorrell even observed that one Russian enthusiast purchased the shoes of the famous 19th century ballerina Maria Taglioni. In 1842, at a farewell dinner he put on prior to the dancer going to France, the main dish was Targaloni slippers, which he expertly cooked and served with a special sauce. Like Matalzo's followers who ritually sucked the feet of revered workers, these diners were engaging in a quasi-sacramental eating of the flesh-covered ballerina's shoes.
Like the fetishized golden lotus of Chinese women, ballerinas' feet, of course, are also the product of agonizing labor. Suffering, in fact, is an integral part of the art. As Joseph Mazo explained in a book called Dance is a Contact Sport, the use of point shoes and the way legs and feet must be positioned forces dancers to defy the principles of human design. Human toes were not designed to stand on. Unfortunately, dancers know this very well, but they stand on them anyway. When dancers learn to turn out 180 degrees from the hips, to dance on point, to hold their torso high off their waist, to arch and point their feet unnaturally, the muscles involved in these operations are strengthened in one way, but weakened in others. Christine Aitken even compares the point shoe to the rack and thumbscrew, entitling, entitling her article, These Instruments of Torture. Ballerinas' shoes often fill up with sweat and blood. Fractures and sprains are common. Most of the damage is actually not done by injuries, but by chronically overburdening the body through overwork, fatigue, aches, ignoring aches, and incorrect techniques. But dancers are willing to are unwilling to admit to injury for fear that it shows lack of dedication. Like the footbound women, the culture of pain that these broken feet embody excite fetishistic interest. The bunions, blisters, ingrown toenails and calluses that are routine for ballerinas are the equivalent of military feet in men. It's no coincidence that the military call them foot soldiers. It is part of military lore that an army lasts only as long as the feet of its infantrymen. Or more poetically, feet to the soldier are what tyres are to the motor, wings to the bird. During the American Civil War, the Atlantic Monthly advised soldiers that the most important attribute for a soldier was good feet. Otherwise, the author continued in a rather defeatist sentence, otherwise when the field is lost, you cannot retire, run away and save your bacon. <laughs> he warned that any captain of a company who lets his men march with ill-fitting boots or shoes ought to be garroted with shoestrings or at least compelled to play Pope and wash the feet of the whole army of the Apostles of Liberty. And so, there we have it. The foot, a theological object, seductive fetish, a sweaty and smelly appendage. There are 26 bones, 33 joints, 19 muscles in a person's foot. Evolutionists claim that it's what makes us human, distinguishing us from other beasts of burdens. In the words of Frederick Wood Jones, author of the classic book Structure and Function as Seen in the Foot, first published in 1944, he wrote, So long as man has been man, and so long as he remains man, it is by his feet that he will be known from all other members of the animal kingdom. Such a humanist position relies on specious notions of the chain of being in which everything in the universe is ranked from the highest to the lowest, from the divine to the human, then to the rest of the animal kingdom, and finally incorporating inanimate objects such as Van Gogh's pair of boot shoes. 
A better approach for us today is a post-human, humanist, radical alterity, or ways of thinking with different worlds. In other words, it entails walking in someone else's shoes and revealing our own, as well as acknowledging the other's feet of clay. So, this concludes my series on the history of body parts. You can watch all of them online, but it does not see the end of my lectures at Gresham College. Please join me on other occasions for the start of a new series, and this time I'm going to be talking about evil women. Meanwhile, stay safe and keep walking.